Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. A budget deal on the rocks. The U.S. and its allies strike Houthi missile sites that have been targeting Red Sea shipping. Ukraine is increasingly convinced additional U.S. and European aid might not be coming. Taiwan holds elections and Israel continues to brush off U.S. efforts to broker a peace deal. And a Washington tempest in the wake of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Uh, we're in the second show uh, of the year, and it already feels like a long year, uh, and with many of the same Groundhog Day themes, funny enough. Uh, Michael, uh, we thought we had a budget deal. You predicted that uh, there could be the same quarter uh, or group uh, up on the hill who executed Kevin McCarthy uh, as speaker, who are now after Mike Johnson, who's actually trying to do the right thing uh, in in a pretty measured and, and balanced uh, way. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, you know, the House is moving to impeach uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alex Mayorkas, who is going to be critical to whatever deal is struck, given that there was going to be an immigration component to this. How is this all going to work? Because this is just one sort of cross-connected, conjoined mess, right? I mean, the supplemental, emergency supplemental is a little bit part of that, even though I want to discuss that in a little bit greater detail later. Walk us through where we are and where we're going. Right. Well, we we do have a budget deal. Um, So there's a lot of of noise out there, and the noise is continuing this morning. But earlier this week, uh, Johnson and Schumer announced that they came to a budget deal. We all knew that this deal would be at the FRA numbers, uh, which it is. It's the top line spending at $1.59 trillion. Um, however, people are saying that the deal really is $1.659 trillion because it does include that $69 billion on spent COVID funds that we talked about previously that was considered a side deal. But it's really always part of the deal, and that money's already been appropriated. So it does not add any extra money to the deficit. So the real number really is uh, uh, $1.59, uh, and then they're taking those unspent COVID funds to help relieve some of the pain on the non-defense domestic discretionary. Now, Johnson did get some wins in this. He did get uh, an agreement that they would uh, accelerate $10 billion in IRS funding cuts uh, from FY25 to FY24, and also rescinding uh, six, just over $6 billion in some of the, the COVID relief funds, which is about $16 billion. Now, um, we knew where it would end up, and Johnson's doing the right thing. Johnson's trying to govern. He's trying to work with the Democrats uh, to make the country function, and the Democrats really aren't doing him any favors. Schumer took to the floor right away, saying this is a win, and not a nickel was cut. You know, from this deal doesn't really help Johnson. Then Biden released a, a statement thanking Schumer and Jeffries for their leadership in developing the framework and doesn't mention Johnson in it. And then to make matters worse, Johnson actually tried to meet with Biden on Wednesday to discuss this and other pending matters that are important on the Hill. And Biden refused to meet with him, but agreed to do a, a phone call with him. And that's just not smart. We are at a very tenuous position here when it comes to supplemental, when it comes to appropriations and a lot of other important matters. And the president needs to work with the House Republicans on a bipartisan basis for for the good of the country. Meanwhile, Johnson is taking on the chin from his right flank, 
who gave immediate pushback on the deal. The Heritage Foundation came out against it. Uh, and there was a conference meeting Wednesday morning uh, where Jim Jordan stood up saying that we need to do a one-year uh, continuing resolution with the 1% cut. And that was his position when he ran for speaker. And that continues to be Jim Jordan's position now. Uh, Warren Davidson, who was a Jordan ally, stormed out of the meeting saying that we are uh, Republicans have been surrendering. Then yesterday morning, uh, Johnson met, oh, actually, but before that, uh, on Wednesday, uh, later in the day, the conservatives were so upset that they decided to take the floor down and vote against uh, the rules so they couldn't consider any legislation. They had to stop voting early. Thursday morning, uh, Johnson met with several of the Freedom Caucus members, and the Freedom Caucus guys walked out of there thinking that Johnson was now considering getting rid of the deal uh, with, with Schumer and were, and was saying that publicly and tweeting that. However, uh, Johnson did say, and I talked to a lot of my friends in leadership who said that it's just not the case. Johnson did not make those commitments to them, and he came out saying publicly, if you hear anything otherwise, that's simply not true. Uh, so now, you know, we talked about countdowns on the last show. We were four legislative days away from the government running out of funding. So uh, there is obviously a lot of CR talk, not just this one-year CR talk, which I still think is nonsense, but uh, the Senate on a bipartisan basis is starting to move in that direction. Uh, and, and Schumer's announced he's going to have a procedural vote uh, early next week to move a CR. We're looking at one probably to March 1, possibly March 15th, but I think it, more likely March 1. Um, uh, Johnson's not said either way if he would support one or not, but he's definitely going to support one. I think it's in his best interest to get jammed by the Senate. Now, you mentioned immigration, uh, and you're right. I mean, this is it's, this is a big issue because he is going to have to do something on immigration policy, either in the appropriations process or on, on the supplemental, which we'll talk about in a little while. And impeaching Mayorkas uh, is, does not help the case here. And and even Lankford, Senator Lankford, who's leading the negotiations on border policy for uh, Republicans, you know, expressed skepticism about this and says, look, the problem is Biden's border policies. It's not Mayorkas. It's, it's the policies that Mayorkas is enforcing right. at the behest of the Biden administration. And even Jonathan Turley, who is the you know, Republican go-to constitutional scholar on these things, came out saying there is no basis to impeach Mayorkas, right? You can't right. beat somebody over a policy difference or, or poor judgment. So look, this is red meat for the conservatives. I also think it gives us, it buys Republicans a little time on their impeachment inquiry on Biden so they could focus on, on Mayorkas. But I'm still optimistic that they will come together on border policy because now even Democrats are coming out saying, we need it. Not just Democrats from border states, but folks as far away as Rhode Island um, are now saying um, that uh, Congressman Magaziner, that we need to, to address these border issues. So uh, I, I'm still hopeful it'll come to a head and either end up on the supplemental, which we'll talk about later, or as part of the appropriations process. Um, well, and I uh, want to uh, get back to that, but I want to kind of go around the horn on what are going to be what uh, some of the bigger uh, stories uh, of the week are. I mean, on this program, we've been calling uh, on the administration uh, to uh, create an international coalition, not just to protect uh, shipping, but also strike uh, Houthi uh, radar sites, launch sites, uh, stockpiles. And, uh, you know, in, in the last uh, 24 hours, that's exactly uh, what's happened. The United States uh, and Britain did the striking, Australia, Canada, Netherlands. Uh, and Bahrain participated and supported uh, those forces. Houthis and Iranians are vowing retaliation. My view is we keep hitting them until they stop shooting at us. Uh, Dove, uh, walk us through uh, whether or not these strikes are going to achieve um, what we hope they're going to achieve, because it does bring our European allies and partners into it, all of whom have actually been supportive of these strikes, uh, ultimately. What's, what's your sense on the efficacy of this, the deterrent signal it sets, and what's Next, given the Saudis uh, and some of our other partners in the region actually did not want us to strike those sites. Walk us through where we are and what this means. 
Well, first of all, uh, let me pick up with the Saudi thing first. Um, the Saudis formally did not want us to strike. Uh, and that's because they've had some kind of peace overtures with the Houthis. It's quiet there for a year. Uh, they're trying to get all that wrapped up. On the other hand, anybody who knows the region knows that the Bahrainis don't do a thing without Saudi approval. Right. Uh, after all said and done, the Saudis just have to go across that causeway. If you've been to that part of the world, uh, it's like going across the, uh, you know, the 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 bridge to uh, the eastern shore. Um, that's about as how long it is. So um, clearly, the Saudis uh, are signaling something to Bahrain and to us uh, that they don't want to signal publicly. And that's very, very important. Um, secondly, uh, the European coalition, and I'm sure Jim can expand on that, uh, these folks know that simply by being part of it in terms of command and control or communications or whatever makes them targets for the Houthis as well. Uh, and so they took the risk. And um, that's terribly important. And finally, in terms of your first question, uh, look, one strike's not going to do it with these characters, uh, but multiple strikes will. And I think that uh, we're going to have to go against them again. And then the question is, at what point do the Iranians turn around to the Houthis and say enough is enough? And here, I think we're going to have to, if we've been playing around with the Iranians in the cyber world, uh, obviously, we don't talk too much about that. Uh, we may need to step that up and make it clear to them that they're going to be paying a price, too. Uh, I've written about that. Um, there are lots of good targets that we can go after that perhaps we haven't yet or we have to do again. Um, uh, but I think that's going to be part of the equation. But I think the biggest story is it's not just us, us and the Brits. And oh, by the way, uh, Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister Sunak's having a lot of trouble. There's been a big outcry in the parliament because he didn't consult them. Uh, right. It's like a Tony Blair story again. Uh, but you've got the, this coalition. And that's a major message, by the way, to the Iranians as well, that it's not just us. Uh, and as I say, it's pretty gutsy on the part of the Europeans and, of course, uh, the Bahrainis and their Saudi backers. Um, Jim, uh, from a European uh, perspective, right? I mean, uh, there's a lot of criticism, uh, even even by some uh, senior U.S. military officials, uh, right, or or folks in uh, the ecosystem that hey, you know, America's focus is being diluted, right? The whole focus has been on Ukraine, uh, then it's been on the Hamas war. Now you've got the Houthi thing uh, going on. And we've got to be standing up to China and doing more in the Indo-Pacific, even though I think on this show we cover every week how focused we actually are. And we're able to do a little bit of walking and gum chewing at the same time. The European bandwidth tends to be a little bit more limited. How does this kind of play into uh, the the entire narrative from a from a European perspective as far as you're concerned? Well, you know, it's 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 very interesting, frankly, uh, because in the past, um, when we've had problems with piracy uh, or um, other sea control, uh, maritime security issues in that area, um, the U.S. has been pretty successful in pulling together countries and having a coalition. And uh, the U.S. is in, is, is in the lead and, and, uh, and the EU has its own as far as piracy is concerned. But what was different this time in the past, uh, over the past week, is that um, 
there wasn't the, the lining up behind the U.S. the way that used to be. There was a bit more reluctance for various reasons um, to get too too much involved uh, down there the way the nations did back fighting piracy. The, the nations that are seafaring nations that depend on trade coming around the horn like that um, are European. Uh, and that's why the Dutch were involved, Canada, surely, and uh, UK particularly. UK is usually with us, uh, thank goodness uh, for the UK along those lines. Um, and they bend themselves like pretzels to do it. Uh, but the others were with us, this, this, the handful of others were with us because they are dependent on those sea lanes. So I think... I think for me, uh, uh, being able to take action the way we did with some of these allies, and as Dub said, they put their, uh, you know, they put themselves on the chopping block in some ways, you know, dealing with uh, the Houthis and this type of thing. That was that was great, but I'm still a little uneasy that there wasn't uh, the the grander support that we're used to getting. Right. Um, the French weren't there. Uh, other nations weren't there. Um, and so I want to see how this develops along the way. We had to do what we did. It was time. We had to do it. Um, and I think certainly privately, the other allies would have said the same thing, too. But there was just this reluctance suddenly that uh, they're not going to follow the U.S. the way they used to out there on the high seas. Uh, and maybe this will turn them around a little bit to show that with even with this handful of allies, we went in there and did the job that everyone knew we needed to do. Uh, I, I, although, again, all of those nations did put statements out uh, of uh, strong support and every once in a while, right? I mean, a French dynamic is obviously they would like an EU mission sometimes, uh, although uh, it, it, you know, it, well noted. Uh, Patrick, uh, Chinese ships have been spared from attacks. That's because the identification signals and maybe some coordination. And increasingly, we're seeing China, Russia, Iran and North Korea flying uh, in for, for formation. Does this change any dynamics with uh, Beijing uh, at all, uh, ultimately? And, and how is how are the Chinese looking at this from your standpoint? Well, the Chinese are looking at all the fronts um, and are going to watch 2024 very carefully, including the Taiwan election uh, this weekend. But um, in the Red Sea and in the Middle East, um, they're wondering about the direction of the Israeli-Palestinian war in Gaza um, and wonder about the sustainability and the strategy behind that. So... Yeah, they're worried about shipping globally, just like the United States and other seafaring countries in the world. In fact, 80% dependent on trade by volume by the seas. Um, we're all dependent on uh, on the seas and freedom of the seas for peace and prosperity. And, and the Chinese get that. Um, Xi Jinping's New Year's message, uh, um, Wang Yi's New Year's message as well, all talked about the fact that they're worried about a wider war. Um, and worried about this potentially triggering. In fact, the intelligence uh, think tank out of China, Kicker, uh, came out with a report this week talking about the worry about uh, Gaza and other wars triggering further wars. So they are conscious of the need to prevent escalation, prevent wider war. They're using this as a talking point immediately. That's their first talking point uh, after the after the U.S. strikes and, and allied strikes on the Houthis is to uh, say we need calm, we need to stop a wider war from happening. But the Chinese are uh, conscious that the U.S. is also worried about a wider war. Um, and they are, are confident, in fact, that the major powers here don't want to see uh, these uh, local disruptions uh, get wider. So I think they're they're banking on that. But they're also watching whether the United States is going to get over its head 
um, in these strikes. As Dove mentions, you know, this is just the first of what is going to have to be a series of strikes to keep down this kind of terror operation from disrupting uh, shipping in the Red Sea. And as a result, um, that's going to be a diversion of resources um, and tie us down and divert us further as we are already stretched over the Ukraine war. Uh, we may get stretched further in East Asia uh, over Taiwan and the South China Sea. I want to take this moment to highlight uh, that this program is brought to you by our sponsors, Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo, DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, Michael, the emergency supplemental is absolutely uh, critical. Uh, we've made the case, the administration has made the case, everybody's made the case that in this, in the Ukraine war context, Ukraine has to win and Russia has to lose. Uh, and yet, increasingly, the Ukrainians are getting very worried that actually, we want to sort of give enough help, but not enough help to actually help them win, that some of this aid has been a little bit slow in coming. Uh, and it's $65, $68 billion that's absolutely critical, uh, looking to Europe for $50 billion. But there, uh, the Hungarians have delayed that. And I'm going to go to Jim in a, in a minute on, on what that outlook looks like. Where are we on the supplemental, how it ties to appropriations and that uh, part of the battle as well? Because at the end, no bucks, no buck Rogers. That's a good question, right? And uh, a lot of people are having a hard time answering where we are in the supplemental. But uh, you know, McConnell this week has made an initial push, and he's reminded his members that the world is at war, number one. And I think the strikes last night on the Houthis helped McConnell's case, um, because I think that there's now talk about even including that in the supplemental, too, because we are expending uh, resources now uh, protecting ship shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, at the same time, McConnell has reminded his conference that this is the last chance for a border deal. Uh, if we don't get one now, it's unlikely to get one next year. If Biden gets reelected, he's not going to be incentivized to do it. And God forbid, if Trump is president, uh, getting a deal with Congress on the border will also be very, very difficult to do. Uh, so uh, Langford, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Senator Langford from Oklahoma, who's the lead uh, negotiator on this, is trying to reassure his colleagues that talks are uh, proceeding. They have made some progress. Uh, the big holdup right now is on... Um, the GOP's efforts to restrict uh, President Biden's parole authority. Democrats are really fighting that. And uh, there's no way that there will be a deal unless there's some kind of compromise on the president's parole authority. But there will be no supplemental unless there is border policy, because the McConnell even had to swallow that. Uh, in addition to the Republicans in the House saying that that's a red line for them because they can't withstand the challenge from their base saying you care more about Ukraine's border than you do our own border. So uh, that is the red line. So I think if there is a border deal, I'm so optimistic that there will be, uh, then I think we'll see a supplemental move in conjunction with some of these appropriations bills uh, sometime in late February. And so that's where you think the whole appropriations process is going to come to a head roughly at the same time. So yes, second quarter, we get everything done by? Is that a oh, good? Everything's got to be done in the first quarter. I mean, after the present State of the Union address, everything's going to turn to politics. So these things need to be done uh, before March 7th. So Ukraine gets its aid by if, the if end they get, of if, March. If they get their aid, yes, if. And if I think they, they will. Get their aid. Right. But I how think do you, this is. How do you game that? What, 70, 30 that they get aid or 50 50 or 51? No, I'm still more optimistic than that. I, 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 think, 60. I think it's really more, um, you know, 80 20. Uh, at best, I mean, at, at least, maybe maybe better. Look, Biden wants it. Look, but Speaker Johnson wants it. I mean, the, the Democrats just have to help work with the Republicans to get to yes. They know what they have to do to get to yes here. And the Democrats want 
border policy, too. As I mentioned earlier, you've got a lot of Democrats now all over the country saying we have to deal with this. And it takes an issue off the table for the presidential election, which, again, is going to be key to Biden. So the Democrats can beat the Republicans over the head about abortion and how chaotic a Trump administration would be. So it's in their best interest to do this. And she take a play out of Bill Clinton's playbook when he took welfare reform off the table. Uh, you know, he co-opted that issue and took it off the table and won re-election resoundingly in, in 96. I'm, I'm going to uh, break uh, order because I'm going to ask about uh, Israel and Hamas uh, in a moment. But, Jim, I want to first uh, go to you. Right. I mean, we're talking about Ukraine aid. Uh, the administration, on one sense, has been instrumental in bringing allies together and furnishing aid to Ukraine, without which they couldn't have survived. However, the criticism is we've always been two steps too slow. We've been talking about that since the very beginning. And I think Dove uh, claimed it. We're doing the right thing, but we're just doing it a little bit too slowly. And unfortunately, We've given gaps and opportunities for the Russians to be able to reconstitute capability. And even worse, if I was any nation considering nuclear weapons, I would get them because it's the surest way to terrify the United States into inaction, right? Almost at every turn, we were worried about like, well, it'll be escalatory. It's all sovereign Ukrainian territory. Russians are on Ukrainian territory. You can strike any of those Russians, whether they're in Donbass, Luhansk, or whether they're in Crimea, and that's perfectly legitimate. And indeed, nobody's ever fought a war without striking deep into the territory of the aggressor at the end of the day. I mean, this, this is like fighting World War II, but saying we're only going to bomb targets, you know, in, in France. No, you're going to take the fight to Germany, uh, ultimately. And certainly Ukraine is allowed to do that, seeing as how the Russians are attacking Ukraine from Russian territory. Um, how does this do the next steps of this do you think play out uh especially because it is increasingly clear that the ukrainians really are getting to the bottom of the barrel in some cases you know our aid is slow it's now they're dependent on on japan of all nations for um the patriot uh weapons um you know medvedev again is doing nuclear saber rattling i mean where where are we right now and do you, in your in your mind, has Washington already sort of washed its hands of this to a degree? Well, it's a it's a it's a great question. And a lot of it has to deal with what Michael was just talking about. Uh, you know, if a supplemental, when a supplemental, if it's going to be, you know, later on in the year, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's be a, a, certainly a drop in the bucket in terms of what they need and, and uh, what they have not been able to do because there hasn't been a supplemental. So I think what you're starting to see now is Zelensky going around Europe and other places. J you mentioned Japan uh, and, uh, and 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 trying to diversify his source of supply. I think I think it's apparent to them. And I think his trip here a few weeks ago certainly convinced him that Washington, despite best, despite best efforts of the administration and what people might say behind closed doors, Washington can't be dependent on right now, particularly as we get in deeper into the election uh, season, that Washington can't be dependent on to give on a consistent basis the kinds of support in terms of equipment and money that they think that, that the Ukrainians knew last year and have come to expect. So they can't do the planning. Uh, they can't be sure of what's going to come from uh, from Washington. So they're having to go to the Europeans, uh, not just the European Union, but e but uh, each capital try to, you know, trying to, uh, you know, shake the beggar's cup. And so we're in a we're in a despicable place having Zelensky having to go do that with nations that aren't ready because they don't have it. They're not ready to give him what he needs. There is not the production of the one five five millimeter uh, shells. Um, 
coming out of Europe that can fill the gap. So they're trying, they're having to come up with creative approaches on the battlefield to deal with not having the artillery, certainly at the readiness that they need. Uh, and they're having to find other ways, whether it's drones or other kinds of tactical moves to try to get around the shortages that the U.S., frankly, uh, has been causing. So in terms of how does this play out, how does the, next, uh, how does the, the year look, uh, it's, it's not going to it is going to look pathetic, I think, in, in a lot of ways, as we see Zelensky having to um, having to come up with ways uh, to, to deal with a problem that the U.S. politics is causing. It's going to be something that's going to be embarrassing and it's a bit of a shame. But I think that's what we're going to see in the coming months. Uh, I, I think it's absolutely terrible because at the end of the day, if you're saying uh, that the United States can be taken at its word in the wake of, you know, we'll be in Afghanistan as long as it takes, we pull chocks. We're going to be in Iraq as long as it takes, we pull chocks. We're, you know, we're with you. We are with Ukraine until we're not with Ukraine. And in that case, don't say stuff like this and then put it in the context of saying the world is watching. And this is to message China. China has staying power. Russia has staying power. It will back Iran no matter what. And Iran will back them no matter what. That's staying power. Uh, hell, the Chinese have been supporting the North Koreans, uh, you know, since 1949. How about that? That's staying power, <laughs> I would uh, suggest. Uh, Patrick, uh, let me uh, bring you to this. Right, as we've long discussed and I just mentioned, uh, and Dub, I'll, I'll come to you uh, in, in, in just a second. Um, you know, China is always watching on what we do and how we do it. We've got uh, Taiwan's elections uh, this weekend. Walk us through how, right? I mean, at this point, it does look like the DPP is likely to win. Walk us through the election. And what is it we should be expecting over the course of the next week, given that the Chinese have, have you know, as usual, tend to overplay their hands in this in terms of how they saber rattle and threaten, which actually has a tendency of turning Taiwanese voters off, right? I mean, so even if they were pro or leaning to vote KMT, they actually might not vote KMT now because they don't like getting hit over the head. And indeed, the KMT is sort of distancing themselves a little bit from Beijing. Talk to us about how this is all going to play out and how all of these other issues in the background may shape how China responds to this. Sure. I think um, just first, I would say it's impressive the international attention being devoted to uh, focusing on the Taiwan election. Um, the fact that this is clearly a, a big political uh, event of, of the world uh, is not lost on on the media and on the United States. Um, the fact that there's a democratic vote in Taiwan happening at all, despite all the withering uh, intimidation and pressure from Beijing, is also impressive. Um, and um, I think that's the first thing to note, is that this is a political event, first and foremost. Now, secondly, the domestic politics in Taiwan have shifted. Um, you've rightly mentioned, Vago, that uh, the people in Taiwan don't want to be told how to vote. Um, you saw this dramatically play out this week in Taiwan when Ma Ying-jeou gave a, a very controversial interview on Deutsche Welle um, and essentially sounded like a Communist Party uh, apparatchik. Um, and, um, you know, it did not go well. And I think this is one reason why the DPP is going to even do better than the polling had suggested. We'll see what happens uh, out of the Democratic vote. As uh, Joseph Wu, the foreign minister, said this week, um, you know, this is not a place where it's 99.9% .9 certain who, who wins this election. We're a real democracy. Um, right. So we'll have to wait and see. 
But I think that the fact is that even if the KMT were to win, um, uh, Beijing is dealing with a different Taiwan actor going forward. And it's because of the backlash to Chinese coercion that has forced the KMT to move to the right on this issue. Having said that, um, the Chinese will exploit the KMT's opening um, because on the one hand, um, Ho Yui, the KMT uh, sort of uh, candidate, um, has said he will not have unification talks if he's elected on his ten on his term. But he he does want to move away from the southbound economic policy, so move closer toward the economic integration that Ma Ying-jeou had started with the mainland. That would be the big difference. But because we're dealing with a Lai Ching government, most likely the third uh, uh, sort of uh, term for a DPP government after the Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, era ends in May. I think this is where there's a big test for that DPP leadership and for Lai uh, and a big test for U.S.-China relations. And um, in the resumed U.S.-China military-to-military dialogue that just started this year, uh, Michael Chase, you know, trying to convince the uh, the Chinese Major General that uh, freedom of the seas is a shared interest. And what is his main talking point? The Major General says, um, we will never compromise on Taiwan. So he is re-emphasizing the main party talking point that um, Xi Jinping laid out in his New Year's message that unification is inevitable. And that unification is inevitable, by the way, is a, a stark contrast to um, DPP Lai Qingde's uh, idea that sovereignty is a fact. Uh, those two things are the bookends of the Taiwan-China cross-strait relationship. And for the US and China, um, the military-to-military relationships, it's ironic as well that Michael Chase is negotiating the agenda going forward for the mill-to-mill when our Secretary of Defense was missing in action. Um, but uh, if it's back on track, you know, we'll end up with a, a, a defense minister meeting on the margins of the Shangri-La Dialogue just a couple of weeks after the inauguration of this likely third DPP government. And that, of course, the U.S. will be uh, having its own election in November. China's watching that. So this is a really fraught year. And yet we may come out in 2025 looking back and saying, well, what changed? DPP is still in government. Biden could get reelected. China's still looking at a political struggle and worried about its economy. Um, and yet um, these issues are not going away. So they're going to continue to be uh, defining the agenda going forward. And, and and you don't think that there'll be that the Chinese are going to act out or anything or, you know, surge in air activity around the borders or you think they'll play it a little bit cooler this time around? No, I wouldn't say cooler. Um, I, you know, I think the, um, the Chinese are confident that they know what their strategy is, and they know they're not sharing that with us. So they're gonna they're going to continue to uh, vacillate uh, or oscillate between um, looking like they're about to start a war um, and looking like they only want peace. Uh, and they're going to just try to you know modulate this so that they can they can position themselves for a new normal every single day. They want us. They want to unify. Um, the peninsula that unify uh, Taiwan in stages, uh, bit by bit, and take advantage of any opportunity, any weakness. But they do not want to use force at this point. And in fact, um, you know, Xi Jinping needs more time for the technology to mature, more time for the PLA to get less corrupt and more capable, um, and um, and for the United States maybe to be more diverted, maybe more in debt. Who knows what in the future? But looking for future opportunities right now. Uh, Xi Jinping needs to stabilize his own economy, um, and he needs to just uh, hold the line on Taiwan. And that's been the message across the board. So you saw that with um, Liu Jinchao, who may be the next foreign minister of China, in Washington this week, um, saying, look, 
just avoid the red lines, America. We can get through this, uh, you know. Um, and you know that's that's sort of where they are right now. But that doesn't mean they won't act up. Of course, they're going to they're going to continue to try to show that there is no choice but uh, unification, as Xi Jinping has said in his near message. Uh, and and we're uh, going to get to the uh, uh, Lloyd Austin MIA issue. Dove, uh, you had one point to make, and then I want to ask you about uh, the Middle East, uh, Israel, and Tony Blinken's trip. Uh, over yeah. I wanted to revert back to the, this Ukraine issue. Um, mm -hmm. Look, uh, I wrote something earlier this week in, in the national interest about the importance of getting that supplemental through. Um, I don't know that there'll be anything beyond that. It'll be too far into the election year. Uh, and that creates a major problem, I think, for Zelensky, because we fund literally half of all the military supplies that they get. And if we if that funding stops, he's got a big problem that he can't solve with Japan or Korea or anybody else. Now, we may well tell him, uh, you better start thinking about negotiating a deal. Putin, for his part, is going to wait to see who gets nominated by the Republican Party. If it's Trump, he's not going to want to negotiate until after the election, because Trump has made it pretty clear that he admires Putin and doesn't particularly care about the Ukrainians. If it's not Trump, then Putin might well be willing to talk, uh, especially if we pressure Zelensky and say, look, whether it's Biden or it's, say, a Nikki Haley, you're just not going to get money through Congress anymore. And if that's the case, then you've seen Zelensky being pressured to talk and Putin being willing to talk. And those kinds of talks are not going to lead to a whole and free Ukraine that uh, Zelensky has been pushing for. So I'm not feeling very good about how this can all play out, even if the first supplemental, the, the, the next supplemental, I should say, actually passes, which I think uh, it will. Um, but that may be the last one. And that's a problem. And oh, by the uh, way, point about American ability. Uh, a former Pakistani prime minister said to me not all that long ago, China is an all-weather friend. You people are not. And the Chinese do continue to push this. And quite frankly, the record is there. Uh, I think Patrick would agree on that. And, and the Europeans are not going to be able to make up whatever delta it is that we're not delivering, right? Uh, and if you look at our stocks, everything is three years away. You know, it's it's almost like quantum computing. Remember when it was always five years away and it always stayed five years away? It's three years away. Anything you want to order, it's three years away. And I know that Bill LaPlante's working this hard and as is Heidi Shu and the whole uh, apparatus. But unfortunately, just about anything we want to make is three years away. Um, Dove, let me uh, bring you in. Uh, Anthony Blinken uh, is uh, again in the Middle East. He's trying to broker a broader two-state solution deal. BB is not really budging on on anything. I mean, he wants to break the Palestinian Authority as well in the in the West Bank, as as we've seen. And cynically speaking, from his standpoint, having Hamas vaulted into power there is not necessarily a negative uh, either, uh, but but still an impediment to what he wants to do, which is, is not to have a two-state solution. And unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, or however you want to put it, Congress really is backing Bibi uh, in, in, in this. Um, at, at what point do we need to recognize that this two-state dynamic that we want to try to get to is not going to happen as long as Bibi Netanyahu is there and Bibi Netanyahu is there and Bibi Netanyahu is not changing anything about what he really wants to do about anything? 
ultimately. Uh, so how does this exactly play out as far as you're concerned? You know, and, and whether or not the International Court of Justice, uh, you know, the South Africans bringing the genocide claim uh, in front uh, of the International Court really changes anything, even though I think we're going to have a verdict, I think, between February 6th or before February 6th, when the 17 member panel rotates out. Anyway, give us give us your sense on where we are and actually where this is all going. Well, uh, first of all, there are two factors motivating uh, Bibi. The first is staying out of jail. The longer the war goes on, which is why I think he doesn't terribly mind having a war with Lebanon as well, uh, the better his prospects, uh, particularly if he thinks he can tell the country, I won these wars, um, which I don't think he will, by the way, win. Um, the and, and, and then... And then the American concern that he would actually like to have a war with Iran because it helps him out, you know, as well. Right. I mean, so there's that fear that senior officials have mentioned. It's like, hey, we've got to be careful that we don't end up in a war with Iran that, you know, we we don't necessarily want to be in. That's that's been a very long term fear that that somehow he would drag us in. But I think that it would be very hard for him to take on Iran and Lebanon and Hamas all at the same time. They just don't have the resources for it. Um, but he might go after Lebanon. And, and this is the, the second point about what Bibi is up to. You've got these crazies like uh, Ben Gvir, the national security minister, and Smutrik, the finance minister, who want to clear out Gaza on the one hand and basically are advocating doing something against Lebanon. And I think that they are simply the spokespeople for Bibi himself. He doesn't want to say it, so he lets these characters say it. So he's got two motives here. One is he agrees with these guys, and second, he wants to protect himself. Um, the country supports the war. What the country does not necessarily support is how the war has been played out. There is a lot of concern about that, and given the Israeli ability to take out individuals even inside department houses uh, by getting their drones to fly through windows and hit apartments, it really becomes questionable why they had a carpet bomb or at least continue to carpet bomb for as long as they have. Uh, that, by the way, is is the case South Africa is making. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, frankly, a, a disgrace to talk about Israelis committing genocide um, after Israel was created because of genocide, quite frankly, in many ways. Um, but the Israelis aren't going to care about the, the ICJ decision. In fact, it'll probably unite the Israelis even more to believe we have no one to rely on but ourselves. Of course, there is a country they do rely on, and that's us. And at the end of the day, we are in a position, if we want it to be, to turn around to Netanyahu and basically tell him enough's enough. And if you don't like it, because Blinken's been telling him enough's enough for some time now. And Bibi basically thumbs his nose at Blinken. He thumbs his nose at the president. But um, were we to say, OK, don't expect us to veto anything anymore in the U.N. or even go further than that and say, don't expect us to continue to end run Congress by sending you uh, artillery shells or anything else you want without getting congressional approval, which you probably will not get anymore. Um, that might get his attention. Uh, we can get his attention if we want. And the question is, to what extent does Biden feel I support Israel and I'm stuck because of that, that I support Netanyahu or eventually say I can support Israel without supporting Netanyahu? Once he makes that decision, things could well change. 
Um, this is a nice uh, dovetail, right? If if nothing, Joe Biden is unyieldingly loyal. He has always been loyal to Israel. He is demonstrating his loyalty, even if it disrupts his own base that he needs uh, to be elected, uh, reelected. And it doesn't appear uh, to be changing. And he is loyal to people on his staff, uh, even if they've made uh, mis- mistakes in, in the wake of this. Michael, I want to take you uh, to the uh, latest Washington Tempest over Lloyd Austin's whereabouts during his cancer surgery and complications, right, for, for a couple of days. Apparently, nobody knew uh, where where he was. Uh, the man scheduled his uh, cancer surgery within some bounds, as many senior people do during the holidays. He had complications. He ended up back in the hospital. His chief of staff was sick uh, as, as well. And for a couple of days, you know, there's a question about where he was. Honestly, if they really wanted to find him, they would have found him, right? So the whole thing, you could argue also is like, well, the Defense Department isn't that important, blah, blah, blah. It was still doing all of its missions. It was still striking targets in the Middle East. Aid was still flowing as much as it'll flow to Ukraine. Deterrence was was happening. Uh, but it still is interesting. Um, what's what's the blowback on the Hill from this? Are we going to see you know hearings or anything else? There have been a lot of mea culpas from Austin and from everybody else. Um, you know, no, nobody here is nefarious, nor was doing anything nefarious. Austin's also a very, very private guy. I want to quickly, we've got about five minutes. I want to go around the horn and get everybody's bite at this apple before we go. Go ahead. Okay. Well, there's tremendous blowback on this. And it's really, I think, more than a couple of days, right? I mean, it was on December 22nd where Lloyd Austin had the procedure for his uh, prostate cancer. Uh, and it was on January 1, you know, about a, over a week later that he uh, had complications and was readmitted. And it wasn't until uh, earlier this week, January 9th, that the White House even learned of his diagnosis. Right. Not to mention the fact all the things interceding that they didn't know where he was. And the fact that Kath Hicks was given some of his responsibilities on January 2nd and didn't know why. Uh, and the public wasn't made available, uh, wasn't made aware of this until January 5th. So there's bipartisan outrage on Capitol Hill uh, and, and taking different forms. So, for example, uh, the uh, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers, along with his ranking member, Adam Smith, uh, on Sunday released a statement, uh, you know, calling on Austin to provide additional details about his health and the whole decision making process that went through. And they expressed concern about how the disclosure uh, was handled. And I think they're right. Uh, Mike Rogers took it a step further and he is launching a formal investigation. So I think that will culminate in, 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 in hearings. Uh, but you have Democrats like Seth Moulton saying, and I think correctly, the military works on a chain of command and a total breakdown in this chain, he says, is unacceptable and unprecedented. And we need a decisive message that this is not going to happen again. Uh, you've had eight House Republicans uh, call for uh, Lloyd Austin's resignation, two uh, GOP senators, but now one uh, Democratic Congressman, Chris Deluzio, on the Armed Services Committee came out uh, calling for right. his resignation. Uh, and, you know, of course, to pile on, uh, make matters worse. You have uh, Congressman um, uh, from Montana uh, introducing articles of impeachment, uh, uh, Matt Rosendale against Lloyd Austin. And what I didn't realize, there already were articles of impeachment introduced against Lloyd Austin by Corey Mills uh, last year over the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Uh, so, And the Senate also, led by Roger Wicker on the Republican side, sent a letter to Lloyd Austin uh, demanding a detailed timeline of the events and the hospitalization complications. So uh, this is a really unfortunate uh, self-inflicted wound, an unforced error right. that is going to take up time uh, for the House Armed Services Committee, especially since the budget is going to be delayed uh, because of where we are with FY24 appropriations. So I think it's something we're going to see a lot of attention paid to in the coming months. Dove, uh, Jim, and, and then uh, Patrick, before we wrap up, go ahead. 
Well, I had something the uh, on Wednesday in the Hill uh, with three questions. Uh, one, why wasn't Cath uh, Hicks told immediately? Um, there's a much larger group of people that knew about it than folks might realize. Anybody who's worked in the building at senior levels knows that military assistants and the executive assistants uh, who run scheduling and so on have their uh, networks and uh, somebody could have told their boss, you might want to check and see what's going on. Uh, and so that's number one. And then number two is, why didn't somebody say to Kath Hicks, you better come home on January, uh, they should have said this on January 2nd, you better come home. I was called home from California on a much more uh, trivial issue than this issue. And the chain of command thing is critical because between January 2nd and January 5th, what would have happened if we would have had a Marine barracks explosion uh, like incident? Where would Kath have been? In Puerto Rico? Uh, that's not the best way to do this thing. So there are some real issues here. Plus, uh, Michael didn't mention this, but one of the issues that Roger Wicker and the Republicans raised in their letter is the law may have been broken because Kath Hicks should have been involved from the very start. That's not necessarily her fault. That's not necessarily Austin's fault, because after all, he handed over authority. And that begs for a further question. Who exactly ordered the strikes on the Iranian targets? Now, to say, well, it was pre-ordered, but even at the last second, you can turn around to the, command, the co combatant commander in question and say, hold off. I mean, after all, that's been done before. Right. People have been held off while they were already in the air. So... All in all, this is not a, a, a Lloyd Austin impeachment issue. This is a breakdown of government issue. And that really worries me. Uh, look, we, we had uh, chief of naval operations face down, uh, in, you know, uh, on the street, uh, having suffered a cardiac uh, event and didn't say anything about it. You know, we, we had General Smith and, uh, and that episode, and there was a little bit of de a delay in getting into it. I mean, so ultimately, I don't think people nearly are as open uh, as they should be about some of this stuff dealing with, uh, with uh, senior leaders, although uh, Lloyd Austin was quoted in the Pentagon's uh, statement uh, about the strikes uh, against uh, the Houthis. Jim, I know you got to go in a minute, so give us a quick take, Patrick, and then I've got to go to Michael, who gets 30 seconds to talk to us about Iowa uh, and the presidential race, uh, even though I think we know we're marching toward a coronation. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, just to say that um, I think uh, we, we know a lot of the players in this, uh, most of us here on the podcast, and um, they are they are uber, uber competent people. Uh, Kath and uh, Kelly uh, Magsman and others in that front office, uh, they, they know what they're doing. They've been around. So I don't think it's really, to me, it's not incompetence. Uh, I think it's a combination of uh, overly protecting their boss, who was very private, as you mentioned, on this kind of thing. So I think there was an over over attempt to uh, to uh, protect him. I think there was um, uh, I think this is, in a sense, a case of shit happens. Uh, I think something went wrong and these super competent people began to fall all over themselves. And I think it will come out in the investigation what it was. But you know, there was there was one mistake that just multiplied itself and they struggled to to contain it. And then the last thing I'll say is that there might be a little uh, dollop of hubris in this as well. I think 
Uh, they've been doing, um, they've been running that front office like a clock over the past few years. And it could be that uh, they felt that they could handle something that was a bit out of the ordinary in terms of, of the SecDef's hospitalization and the announcements and that kind of thing. And it got out of hand. And at the end of the day, they couldn't contain it. And it became this, this, this own goal. So there's a bit of, a bit of the hubris spice that's in this. But we'll have to see what comes out of this investigation. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just too bad this has, hap- this has had to happen at a time like this. Patrick, uh, real quick, and then uh, going to turn very quickly to Michael. Go ahead. Well, I assume we'll never let this happen again, at least not in the short term, in terms of letting this kind of breakdown in government. Uh, but I do think the perception has been uh, created that the system is not as reliable as it should be at a time when the world is uh, riven with, with crises. So we have to do a better job. Chinese, Russia, other enemies are watching. Um, and uh, it's very important that we uh, make sure that we are credible in our capability and our resolve. And that includes having a chain of command that's not broken. Pick up the phone and call somebody if you don't exactly. know where they are. Right. I mean, come on, man. Uh, Michael, you got 30 seconds. Iowa caucuses, presidential race. What does it all mean? Chris Christie out uh, and you know, increasingly looking like it's uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, what, uh, as the number two, Donald Trump looks like he's going to be sweeping some of these primaries. Anyway, walk us through, uh, what you think is interesting about this beyond what it is everybody's reading about. I did mention previously on on our last show that Trump had been white noise in the past. And now that we're in election year, he's going to get a lot more attention. And I think we've already seen that leading up to the Iowa caucuses. And Trump has said a lot of outrageous things this week that are getting a lot of attention and remind people about what they're in store for under Trump presidency. And I won't go go through them all, but he did say things like, you know, how attractive is the Civil War, and it was something that could have been negotiated, uh, lying about gas being $8 a gallon. But he did do something I think we need to talk about because, um, uh, you know, I think it's it's one thing that's a little dangerous is the fact that he did not sign the pledge uh, that's a voluntary pledge to be on the Illinois ballot that would say that you're against advocating for the overthrow of government. He signed that pledge in 16, he signed it in 20, did not sign it this year. I think you're right, Iowa is going to be a coronation. But after Monday, uh, when Iowa's done, the focus will be on New Hampshire. I think New Hampshire is really in play. Trump was at 39%. Haley's at 32%. Christie's at 12%. With Christie out, most of those voters are going to go to Haley. Haley really could win the New Hampshire primary, and uh, that would draw a lot of attention. I still think Trump's going to be the nominee. The type of voter that votes in South Carolina and Super Tuesday is very different than New Hampshire, but uh, I do think that uh, there's going to be more focus on, on Trump and some of the outrageous things he says, which only will help Biden in the long run. Guys, thanks very much. Uh, really appreciate it. A uh, reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our own JJ Gertler. Hope everybody has a great weekend. And tune in for our business uh, podcast, Uh, That will be over uh, the weekend. In the meantime, hope everybody has a great holiday weekend. Thanks very much. And we'll see you again soon.